Now, would you please turn with me in your program to your study guide, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, uh, as well as our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho, and also our friends at Purpose Church in Purpose Church, Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us today for uh, for our study of God's Word. And we're doing something a little bit different. As you look at your study guide, you see that it's got hole punches in it. And so what we want you to do is after the service, I think these are just for five bucks, uh, out there in the um, center by the Connect Center, there's a table next to it where you can pick up what we call these growth binders. And after you do your sermon outline and after you fill it in and and make notes, you can take this home and put it in your growth binder. And uh, any of you here um, remember when Dr. Ted was pastor here years ago? Do we have so Okay, we still got a few here. Uh, This is kind of a retro thing, kind of a throw back thing, because I hear that Dr. Ted used to do that. And so we think this is just going to be a great way to keep your sermon outlines uh, organized, and, and we're going to give you double the space that we normally do. That is very popular with my wife, Kimberly. I made major points. I told her that we did it just for her. Don't tell anybody we did it for everybody, but uh, she was very impressed by that. And so bring those home, put that into your folder. Now, today we're kind of in between two series, our Christmas series and and Christmas and the holidays, and next Sunday we're going to start a really awesome series I'm so looking forward to on 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, one of the earliest eyewitnesses and followers of Jesus who wrote the last three letters of the New Testament. These are some of the last words we have uh, about how to do following Christ and how to do church that we have from the early church right before the final book which he wrote, which was his vision of heaven that he wrote down for the book of Revelation. But today with this standalone message, I want to do a message entitled Christianity for Skeptics. And it really is targeted for you that are left-brained or for friends of yours that are left-brained or you want to encourage them to, to watch this online, to, to get a hold of this, to share this with them. Because there's this whole idea that followers of Jesus are gullible. I mean, we'll believe anything. We'll see a helicopter go over and think it's a UFO or, you know, we're, we're just totally gullible. And that followers of Christ have been gullible from the very beginning. And that is absolutely demonstrably untrue. Nobody was more skeptical of new truth claims, of new claims of truth, than a Jewish person in the first century, particularly in the city of Jerusalem. This was the most skeptical crowd that there possibly could be that first were followers of Jesus Christ. Let me just illustrate what I'm talking about. Let's look at the resurrection of Jesus as told by one of the early eyewitnesses, uh, John, that I mentioned. We're starting his new series next week on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and uh, before his vision of heaven uh, from the book of Revelation. So in John 20, he's telling about the resurrection. And He's talking about Mary Magdalene, and you don't think of Mary in the Bible as a skeptical person, but just just watch Mary in action here, okay? Jesus, for three years, has been telling him, look, I'm going to die on the cross, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave. So you think they'd be looking forward to it. You You think they'd be looking for it, all right? But instead, they're highly skeptical. Look at this. She, she knew that Jesus had taught that. She had been with him for three years. She goes, she sees the empty tomb. Now Mary stood outside the tomb shouting, let's start Easter at Fairplex. Let, let, let's do Easter. No. She stood outside the tomb. What is she doing? You tell me. You tell me. She's crying because she, she doesn't believe it. Uh, empty tomb. They must have stole the body. Not a chance he rose from the dead, even though he told us he was going to. And we saw miracles for three years. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. 
and saw two angels in white. Now, whenever God wants somebody to believe something, he always sends angels. Because angels are like awesome. They are scary. The first thing an angel always says when they first encounter uh, somebody is, don't be what? You tell me. You tell me. Don't be afraid. Because these like are big and huge and they got six packs and they're all ripped. And I mean, they are just like awesome. She sees two angels in whites seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Okay, that'll get her. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away. They've stolen the body. She still doesn't believe. She's still skeptical. And I don't know where they have put him. Then she turned around and God says, okay, they don't believe the empty tomb. Uh, They don't believe the angels that I sent. Let's send in Jesus. That usually does the trick. She turns around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. She'd been with him for three years. But her mind is so convinced of the impossibility of the resurrection that she doesn't even recognize him when he's standing right in front of her. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She says, there's more chance he's the gardener than he's the resurrected Jesus. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Finally, finally. Empty tomb, nope. Uh, Angels, nope. Two of them, nope, nope. Uh, uh, Jesus himself, nope. Finally, she believes. Now let's carry it on with verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that she had said these things, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he gives them evidence. He said this, he showed them, he, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, skipping over to verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, is this a left-brain guy or what, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands with the holes from the cross. Reach out your hand and put it into my side where the spear had gone into his side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, now, this is a big deal. Jews never called anybody Lord except the one true God. Nobody said that to a man. Nobody. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now I'm going to invite uh, Jason Anderson up, and uh, he is one of my heroes. Jason was just sworn in a little over a week ago. He's from our church family here at Purpose, and he was just sworn in as the new district attorney for the county of San Bernardino. Uh, yay, isn't that awesome? And, and let me brag a little bit more. Uh, Jason, um, not only being a Virginian, a fellow Virginian there, all right, but Jason, uh, it is the fifth biggest uh, district attorney's office in the United States. That means if it were its own law firm, he would be head of the fifth biggest 
law firm, not only in America, but the world, maybe the known universe, okay, at least our galaxy, you know, and, and, and he's been a prosecutor, he's been a defense attorney, his wife Starla, that many of you know, his daughter uh, Ella was just singing up here last week, uh, his wife Starla, she also was a prosecutor for the district attorney's office, uh, she now teaches law and ethics and conflict management at a- APU, uh, you'll see the pictures, I think we had some pictures there, did they go already, yeah, when he was, this is a picture of their family in his office. And then Jason, this is so cool. Next slide. He had me come and had the other district attorneys, the deputies and many of the others, many of the other staff in his office. And I prayed over them that God would use that office to bring about justice in the county of San Bernardino in the years ahead. Is that, is that, is that cool or what? So, um, so, so you you promising anybody that lives in San Bernardino will never experience injustice ever again. No, no. I know. That was your go that far. I know. So, Thank okay. you for doing that, Glenn. That was very meaningful for you to come over and do that. Appreciate that very much. Well, bottom line is this guy knows evidence. He knows evidence. And he, and he said this to me, and in, in your program, I put it as a quote from that, Jason. That's good. It makes me said, sound like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> quickly, though, you said to me, this is from your law book from yes. years ago. Okay, so this, Jason Anderson told it to me. He didn't write it. Okay, so there we go. The state of affairs that leaves you with an abiding conviction of the truth of the matter. What we would, I think we lay people would call it beyond a reasonable doubt kind of thing. Explain to us what that means. That is actually, uh, when you have a criminal case, uh, you're presumed innocent. So the law actually says you should be a skeptic if there's charges against someone. If someone is saying something against you, you should be skeptical. In order to overcome that skepticism in court, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. That doesn't mean all possible or imaginary doubt. That is that state of affairs that leaves you with an abiding conviction. So that is actually the instruction of how you either have reasonable doubt where you haven't overcome that and you don't have that abiding conviction, or if you do, you can feel comfortable in your verdict. So that actually comes from the California jury instructions. Now, give that illustration as to how that works. Uh, you were telling me that swimming pool illustration about, so, so you don't have to see it 100%. You, you right. can have, but if you have that abiding conviction, that's what you're looking Correct. for. Correct. And, and, and we said earlier that a lot of potential jurors could be like Thomas. They need to feel the wounds. They need to reach into the side. The law doesn't require that, and our faith doesn't require that. Uh, the example we give to help people overcome any imaginable or possible doubt is imagine that you're inside your house and you're fixing dinner. People are going to come over. You have a small child who wants to swim in the pool. And you say, you cannot swim in the pool because I can't watch you. I'm distracted. It wouldn't be safe. So you're at the sink. You're at the oven. You're turning around. You hear your slider open. You hear the pitter-patter of feet go outside. You hear a splash in the pool. And as you turn around, your child's already back inside with the swim trunks on. They're soaking wet, and they're just standing there. Now, the question is... Do you have an abiding conviction that your child just got into the pool and disobeyed your order? The law says yes, you can rely upon that, right? Now, there's some imaginary doubt. It could have been some natural phenomenon that created that sound. It could have been an object that fell into the pool. The hose could have burst and, and sprayed your child with water, and they came in, and somebody would say, well, you haven't proven to me that the child was in the water. That's kind of absurd. And so that's the example that we give to make sure people feel comfortable that even relying on circumstantial evidence or a reasonable inference and having that abiding conviction that that's where uh, the matter stands that your child disobeying got in the pool. So it's a quick example, but people seem to, to no, get onto that. So that's awesome. I've used that a ton. No, that's great. Well, how does that apply to faith? Is it, I'm going to talk about searching for evidence for faith. How does that apply here? In talking about this, uh, you know, I use the example of the jury instructions. The Bible is kind of the jury instructions for those of us who are either already Christians or 
we want to bring people to Christ through the Bible. Uh, there's a lot of experiences in the Bible that we read about that we don't experience today firsthand. But in terms of the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, um, our own experience in our own lives, we are left with that abiding conviction. We call that faith. In the law, we call that circumstantial reasonable inference that we can rely upon. I think in Christianity, we just call that faith because we know through all of that, we have that abiding conviction of the truth of Jesus. Awesome. Let's thank Jason for sharing with us. Oh, my goodness. Thanks, Glenn. Wow. So we don't need to go to law school, right? No, it's it. Right, 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 There's three years of law school. You come over next week and start working for me. Oh, yes. That would work out great, you know. So awesome, awesome. Now, he he knows about evidence, and and here's a definition of evidence. And uh, Jesus has said, God has said, that this is the path we can take in uh, looking for the evidence that he is true or not true. Jeremiah 29, verse 13. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. God says, if you'll, if you'll look for the evidence, you will find it. The evidence is there for the claims of Christ. Now, let me tell you that something's just frustrating for us as Christ followers, for me as a pastor is so many times there will be uh, video clips or uh, viral uh, video clips or viral videos uh, that go out, and they're just like these quick attacks on Christianity, and then they go back. It's like guerrilla warfare. They attack, then disappear back into the jungle once again. Attack, there's no chance for rebuttal. There's no chance for cross-examination. And so they'll criticize the Christian faith or the Bible. They're kind of like political attack ads. Have you ever noticed that the vast majority of political ads are negative? How many of you have ever noticed that? Well, the reason is because it works. It works to just go in there, besmirch somebody's reputation, then pull back once again. And so it's so frustrating that, that people are either losing their faith or they're failing to consider the claims of Jesus because of these kind of attacks. And, and people are going to hell for lack of proper evidence. I mean, what a tragedy it would be, Jason, if somebody was capital punishment, somebody was executed by lethal injection uh, from one of your cases in San Bernardino because of a lack of evidence, because of inadequate evidence that was presented uh, to the jury. And the same thing is true. And it's so frustrating when there's no cross-examination. Proverbs 18, verse 17. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. I've been on a jury a couple of times. How many of you have ever been on a jury? And you know how it is. When, when the first person speaks, you're like, why are we even here? This person is so, you know, guilty, of course. But then somebody comes forward and cross-examines, and now you've got a cross-examination. Now you've got a point and counterpoint. You've got a point and then a rebuttal. And so it's so frustrating when there is no chance for cross-examination. Or, this is what you'll see on TV sometimes, if there is a cross-examination, it goes something like this. On the one side representing the atheist is this British guy with five PhDs from Oxford who's got this cool British accent, all right, and he's on one side. And then the other side representing Christians is Bubba from the Swamp, and, uh, and, and, and Bubba believes that Oprah Winfrey is the Antichrist. And Bubba, you know, he, he loves Jesus, but you've got him. And, and you're just looking at the TV screen and going, no, not Bubba. Anybody but Bubba. 
No, please don't have him uh, defend us. Instead of Bubba, it should be Ravi Zacharias, or it should be Lee Strobel, or it should be Sean McDowell, or it should be Mark Clark, or it should be Jay Warner Wallace, who we're actually trying to get to speak here uh, sometime this year. Uh, Mark Clark says, and I love this quote, he says, you want to run up the ramp of reason before you make the leap of faith. Everything's a leap of faith. Driving here was a leap of faith. Uh, Getting up this morning was a leap of faith. Everything we do in life is a leap of faith, but it's whether it's a reasonable leap of faith or not. And so he says, you've got to run up the ramp of reason before you make the leap of faith. And I just want to tell you, the answers are there for those that look for them, that ramp of reason before you make a leap of faith. Let me give you four questions uh, just to get your search going. Question number one is this. Does it make more sense that something came from nothing or that something came from something or someone? Does it make more sense? Is there that, um, what's that quote? The state of affairs that leads you with an abiding conviction of the truth of the matter. Is there more evidence, does it make more sense that something came from nothing or that something came from something or someone? Now I want to just pause on this for a moment because I think it's such an important point. So many times you'll hear people that, that don't believe that God created the universe. They'll, they'll say something along the lines of, well, it is what it is. Well, where did it come from? Ah, it is what it is. How, how did we get here? Ah, it is what it is. Uh, well, okay, well, how did it happen? Who, who did it? What thing happened? Who, who did this thing? Ah, it just is what it is. And that, I want to say this respectfully and respectful of other people's opinions, but that is a nothing burger answer, all right? Um, uh, But if you say it enough times with a British accent, people believe it. Now, I'm not against British accents. As a matter of fact, I think British accents are totally awesome and cool. As a matter of fact, whenever you hear a British accent, you overestimate a person's IQ by 10 or 20 points, right? Now, uh, Jason and I are from Southern Virginia. In Southern Virginia, you have a Virginia accent, they underestimate your IQ by 10 to 20 points. So we've tried to lose that since we got out here to California. So, but, you know, so I, I love British accents. But it's just crazy. It is a non-answer, and yet we let people get by with this. People are just like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Say it enough times with a British accent, it just, the universe just appeared. All right. The emperor has no clothes. This is a nothing answer, and yet they expect us to have perfectly perfect answers for obscure, odd, awkward verses from Leviticus or the book of Judges that we studied a few weeks ago, a couple months ago uh, here. Uh, Expect us to have perfect answers for those. Perfect answers for how could a loving God allow a tsunami to kill hundreds if not thousands of people in Indonesia. Expect us to have like perfect answers. And don't get me wrong, we should have good answers. And there are good answers. There are not perfect answers. But there are good answers. No perfect answers till we get to heaven. But there are good answers. And we need to work to have good answers to that. But they expect us to have that. And yet on this humongous issue, they get by with simply saying, it is what it is. I mean, imagine if somebody came up with millions of people of evidence on one side, defense or prosecution, and the defense or the prosecutor got up there and said, just it is what it is. Just believe me because I want you uh, to believe me. And so does it make more sense that something came from nothing 
or that something came from something or from someone. Now, every once in a while, people will be honest about this. Uh, George Will is a a Harvard uh, uh, University professor emeritus, and he got the biology Nobel Prize, the Nobel Prize for biology in 1971. And here's what he wrote. There are only two possible explanations as to how life arose here on the planet. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution or a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third position. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur, but that leaves us with only one other possibility, that life came as a supernatural act of creation by God. But I can't accept that philosophically because I don't want to believe in God. Therefore, by faith, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, which is spontaneous generation. Now, there's a moment of honesty because the evidence doesn't point in that direction. That leads us to number two. Does it make more sense that the design of the universe happened by chance, by random chance, or by a designer? Which makes more sense? That the design of the universe happened by random chance or by a designer? Uh, Astrophysicist Fred Hoyle is the one who's famous for formulating the theory of stellar nucleosynthesis. And he writes this, he calculated the odds that all the functional proteins necessary for life might form in the place by random events. He came up with a figure of one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. That's one with 40,000 zeros after it. Since there are only 10 to the 80th power subatomic particles in the entire visible universe, he concluded that this was an outrageously small probability. Life could not have originated here on the earth. Nor does it look as though biological evolution can be explained from within an earthbound theory of life. My atheism has been greatly shaken. And so long ago, they realized that there just were too many things that had to be perfect for life to appear here. So then people like Carl Sagan said, well, uh, aliens came from another part of the universe and they, they planted it here. But then we realized there were so many things that had to be perfect that it couldn't happen anywhere in the universe. So Richard Dawkins, prominent atheist um, apologist, he said, well, the multiverse theory, where there must be multiple universes uh, because it couldn't have happened in this universe, so there must be multiple universes, and they came from another universe to plant it here. No evidence for that, but that's where you go when you don't want to accept the evidence that is before you. But even if it's somewhere in one of the multiple universes, let's go back to point one once again. Even in one of the multiple universes, does it make more sense that something came from nothing or that something came from someone, something, or from someone? Uh, Frederick Burnham, who's a science historian, he writes, the community of scientists is prepared to consider the idea that God created the universe a more respectable hypothesis today than at any time in the last hundred years. Charles Darwin himself said to suppose that the eye with so many parts all working together could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Um, The probability of a planet anywhere in the universe uh, fitting within all 153 parameters, and this number is probably low because scientists are discovering more things that have to be perfect all the time for there to be life. And so these parameters are things like the size of a galaxy or the location of a galaxy or the number of moons around a particular planet or the oxygen levels in the atmosphere. 
And so there are 153 parameters, and that number, this is out of date, I'm sure. This number is growing all the time as they discover more and more things. Well, the chance of it happening is approximately 10 to the 194th power. The maximum possible number of planets in the universe is estimated to be 10 to the 22nd power. Thus, there's less than one chance in 10 to the 172nd power, 100,000 trillion, 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 exists that even one such planet would occur anywhere in the universe. Now, some people will say, okay, well then, I admit, there must have been a designer. But the designer made us, made the life, made the universe, but then walked away from it. And that leads to number three. Does it make more sense that if there is a designer, that designer doesn't communicate with us or that he chooses to communicate with us? Now this one, we don't need a quote, a fancy quote from a super smart person. I think we can handle this one on our own. Does it make more sense that if there is a designer, as all the evidence points, that designer doesn't choose to communicate with us or that he chooses to communicate with us, which leads us to number four, If he does communicate, would he do it with no evidence that it is him, or would he give us millions of pieces of objective, concrete evidence that it is him communicating? Now, here's where where it's controversial. Here's where it's politically incorrect. Because uh, people say, well, okay, you can have your way to approach God, your own religion, your own philosophy, and everybody just kind of makes up their own. But here's the problem. Uh, We can't all be right because we contradict each other. Uh, for example, Buddhism is basically atheistic. Uh, Hinduism believes in about 10,000 different gods. Islam and Christianity believes in one God. And so we can all be wrong, but we can't all be right. We can all be wrong, but we can't all be right. Mark Clark um, uh, talked about uh, speaking with an, an accountant. And this accountant who deals with numbers all the time, and he just totally believed, you know what, there are many pathways to God, and everybody just kind of picks their own pathway, and they're all right. They're, they're, they're all right at the same time. And so uh, Mark Clark said to him, well, uh, what would you say if your elementary-aged daughter came home uh, from math class, and she had a math test, and she had written down 2 plus 2 equals 5, and the teacher had marked that right? How would you feel about that? And, and literally, this is a direct quote. The accountant said, if that's what is true for her, then I'd be okay with it. I don't want him doing my taxes, okay? I, I, I don't want that. Um, now, let me say this just, and, the, and, I, and I want to be respectful, but on the other hand, I want to be clear, and I want to be hard-heading, because people's eternal destiny is on the line in this. Um, Every world philosophy and every religion has zero or close to zero objective evidence for it except for one. Zero to close to zero objective evidence. Um, uh, That doesn't mean they're wrong. doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means they have zero or close to zero objective evidence. That is, you can read the writings of Buddha and you can incorporate them, and if they work for you, okay, that works for you. That's subjective, but there is next to zero objective. There's no prophecies. There's no concrete history that you can test it against. There's none of that. It's purely subjective, and so that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means there is zero evidence. Contrast that to biblical Christianity 
And there are literally millions of pieces of objective evidence that it is indeed true. Uh, there, there are a hundred different categories I could talk about. Let me just pick four. Archaeological or historical evidence. Um, let me just give you an example of this. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, look, look at all the ways the Bible could be wrong. It's like the Bible almost says, I'm going to throw this out there and test it to see if it's right. And if you can trust me in things that can objectively be tested, you can trust it in areas subjectively where it can't be tested, which is how to get to heaven. Okay? How to, where your eternal destiny is going to be. But it gives you so many ways to test it. Here in just one verse, and there are 31,102 verses in the Bible. This is just one. And notice how many chances it has to be wrong. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor, number four, of Judea, number five, Herod, number six, the Tetrarch, number seven, of Galilee, number eight, and his brother Philip, number nine, a Tetrarch, number 10, of Iturea, that's 11, and Traconitus, that's 12, and Lysanias, that's number 13, Tetrarch, number 14, of Abilene, number 15. 15 chances for the Bible to be wrong in one verse. And yet, note what Dr. Nelson Gleck said, who's maybe the greatest archaeologist of all time. He's a Jewish archaeologist. He discovered over 1,500 ancient sites in Palestine and Israel. Here's what he said. The reviewer has spent many years in biblical archaeology and in company with his colleagues has made discoveries confirming in outline or in detail historical statements in the Bible. He is prepared to go further and say that no archaeological discovery has ever been made that contradicts or controverts historical statements in Scripture. How about fulfilled prophecy? There are 1,817 prophecies in the Bible. Uh, did you know that 27% of the Bible is about predictions and prophecies of the future? Uh, take just the 300 that have to do with Jesus. For anybody to accidentally fulfill those prophecies is a uh, just eight of them. Just eight of the 300. To do that accidentally is one chance in 10 to the 16th power. To accidentally have one person fulfill 48 of those prophecies, the chances are 1 in 10 to the 157th power, and yet Jesus fulfilled 300 of them, and there are 1,817 prophecies in the Bible where it says, test me and see if it's true or not, along with thousands upon thousands of historical and archaeological references. How about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What could possibly cause thousands of highly religious, skeptical Jewish people to practically overnight begin to worship a man in addition to God. How, what in the world caused that? Because religious people don't like to change. Let me test you on this. How many of you are seated in the exact same seat you were uh, last week? How many of you? Okay. Don't feel bad. I always sit right here. That's, that's what I said every time. Now, actually, this is a bad week to test it because last week we changed our service time for, for uh, well, no, we did that two weeks ago uh, for, for Christmas at, at 9 and 10.30, and I thought there were going to be fist fights in here. Okay, because people come in, hey, that's my 8.30 seat. Well, that's my 9.45 seat. Well, that's my 11.11 seat. Well, it's 9 o'clock. What are we going to do about this? It, it's 10.30. And so religious people 
uh, don't like to change. This is, this is supposedly a true story about a church that was having a heated argument about whether to have drums in their worship service or not. All right, and a heated argument on this. And one man that was against drums, he stood up and said, Jesus is rolling in his grave today over, over this issue. And I just think to myself, if Jesus is rolling in his grave, we got bigger problems than, uh, than drums and the drums in church. Um, uh, I stole that from Mark Clark. I, I think that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. You know, Jesus is rolling in his grave today about that. We, 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 got, we got bigger problems than that. Now, take how much we don't like to change. Multiply that by 100, and that's how much religious Jewish people in Jerusalem in the first century didn't like to change. I mean, you're talking about not wanting to change where they worshipped, like what seat they sat in or what day they worshipped on or how they worshipped, not talking anything about that, whether they're drums in worship or not, but who they would worship. The Jewish people for centuries had literally been dragged to their tortured deaths rather than say Caesar is Lord or anybody is Lord except for Yahweh, the one true God. And here, overnight, Something happens to make thousands of them at ground zero, all eyewitnesses or friends of eyewitnesses to the events, overnight say, Jesus is Lord. It took something. And we believe there is evidence that that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then changed lives. Um, now, this is more subjective. I'll admit to that. But I would say, Jason, once you have all the DNA evidence and the forensics evidence, then it's okay to apply some, you know, some other testimony as well on top of that of a more personal nature. And let me just add to the, the pieces of evidence. How many of you here have had your lives changed by Jesus Christ? Okay. There, there's evidence, additional evidence, not the only, but subjective evidence to go with the objective evidence. And, uh, and, and, I, and I just want to encourage you that if you're a skeptic listening to this online right now, if you're listening later on, you're listening to this uh, online, or, or you're here today, um, there's a reason there's a hunger in your heart for these things. There's a reason you're listening to this right now. There's a, it's not by accident. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, He has also set eternity in the human heart. The, the reason you're here today is because there's, there's this eternity in your heart that hungers for this. And, and let me just challenge you. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 13. Again, that promise. This is just the beginning of your search. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with, with all of your heart. I'm going to have the praise band come up right now. And, uh, and, and, and I've gone quite late, but... Uh, you know, I really want to show this closing video clip, and I really want to do some closing worship. So if we finish, you know, a little bit after 11, um, um, it's happened before. Okay, it's happened before, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's happening today. <laughs> Aren't you glad to know 2019? No different than 2018. Some things remain the same. The world may change, but some things remain the same. So as the praise man comes, I want to show you just a clip from Tyler Trent. Remember, this has been sweeping the nation. The ESPN story we showed you a few weeks ago of this dear young boy that terrible cancer and, uh, and, um, and, and we showed you that, that video and you can see it, it's all over the place on the internet and everything like that. Well, he died this past Tuesday. And Josh Hoosman from our church, our former junior high pastor, young adult pastor, now started a church, Mercy Road, you know, that's just blowing it up out in Indianapolis. 
Uh, Josh may be the final person that ever got a chance to interview him before he died. Uh, they, they, they was allowed to come in and interview for their Christmas services. This video was shown at their Christmas services, and Josh sent it to me. And, uh, and, and this, is, this is Tyler Trent two weeks before he died, and it just shows another evidence of a changed life, of a life of purpose, a life that can hang on to a promise even during the hardest the hardest times. So let's watch this and then let's kick into a little bit of worship. such an inspiration to so many people. I mean, I know you know that, but just the strength you have is incredible. You have strength that most people don't have. And I wanted to find out where does that strength come from? Where do you find the motivation and ability to, to power through what you've been through? Yeah, I know all my strength comes from my faith in Jesus Christ. That's incredible. I, you know, I don't know that I could have that kind of strength and faith like you do. And I think it's a real inspiration to people during Christmas time that need hope like that. Christmas time is about when we celebrate that God's with us. He was born into the world, that He cared enough about us. He didn't give up on us, even though we rebelled against Him. So how could you say after everything you've been through, battling cancer this long, struggling through what you've had to struggle through, how could you still say that God is with you even in these hard times? Yeah, I know that there's still light at the end of the time. Um, he still blessed me through everything I, that I've been through. Hard and easy. That's incredible. To look at your life and say, God has blessed you with all the things that you've been through, the good and the bad. And I mean, that's just encouraging to me. And the reality is that your daily life these last couple of months being all over television is probably the day-to-day -day life has been really difficult and hard I'm sure how is God in those moments in those hard moments what's it look like for God to be present with you guys I put a lot of errors in way. it's like gambling you never know I know I woke up this morning how how is gonna feel and you praise God in both, man. Exactly. And so what, you know, Christmas time, we're filming this just a little bit before Christmas. How could you encourage anyone out there that might see this about how to find hope this Christmas and the things that they're facing in their life? Um, just find out where your faith lies and rely in that. Um, you know, I don't know where it lies, um, wherever it may be. I always go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, and 18. You know, rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances for this the will of God and Christ Jesus to you. 
at Christmas time for you to be able to face all this and say that you put your faith in Jesus. It's an inspiration and I, I hope that people who watch this get to see the impact that God has used you to make in this world and he could do that for so many more people. And so just thank you, man, on behalf of you know, millions of Americans, thank you that you're willing to speak up and, and, and live your faith out in that way and, and this, to have that kind of courage and strength.